Before I have you stand for Isaiah 64, we're going to be four weeks in Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament that prophesied around 700 B.C., from about 740 to 680 B.C. Prophets primarily did two things when they were called by God. They did foretelling and they did forthtelling. Uh, so foretelling is basically uh, speaking about what, you know, that which will come. They would foretell, for example, about the coming Messiah. But then they also did forthtelling, which is speaking the truth now. And so Isaiah does these two things throughout. He speaks the truth about what will come, and he also speaks the truth about what is going on now amongst his people. Isaiah 64 has a little bit of both, but it's more forthtelling than it is foretelling. Isaiah is speaking to a people in his uh, prophecy that are weary, if you can relate with that. They are weary from their own sin and the effects of that, which is primarily what we will reflect on this morning. Uh, They are weary from being oppressed by the Assyrians, and and Isaiah comes to them speaking words of salvation. In fact, Isaiah's own name simply means the salvation of the Lord. And so as you hear this week and in the coming weeks, uh, Isaiah speak truth both in foretelling and forthtelling, know that he is speaking truth and grace to people that are weary. And then he's calling people who are weary to rejoice. So stand with me as we hear Isaiah's words of truth this morning, which were originally written to weary people, who this morning too can be heard by weary people. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known among your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard no per- uh, or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and you have made us melt in the hands of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. May be seated. I wonder what Christmas was like for you as a child. Obviously, there are children, kids, 
in here this morning, and so you could think about this, guys and girls, uh, in the present. Uh, what is Christmas like for you now? Uh, those of you who are no longer children, uh, I wonder what images and experiences and stories are conjured up in your mind and in your heart when you think about Christmas. When I think about my experiences as a child and during the Christmas, Christmas season, which were very rich in, in many ways and, and a blessing and, and really sweet and even, dare I say it, somewhat idyllic, at least it felt like such at the time, a, a, an overarching theme of my experience during the Christmas season as a kid was one of impatience, uh, one of waiting, one of expectation. Uh, this started early in the month of December when I would, uh, with great joy and delight, get the Sears catalog, uh, the big, like, phone book thick uh, Sears catalog uh, back, of course, before the internet, um, and look, you know, through this pages uh, and pages uh, of toys and make marks and, and pens. And I, I gather other people did these things, right? And so it was waiting and it was expectation. And, you know, when's it going to come? When's it going to come? And um, we, we didn't really practice spiritually or even, pra- uh, even functionally, practically much around the, the notion of Advent. Uh, but we kind of experienced Advent um, implicitly by expecting and waiting and being frustrated and being impatient, all culminating to Christmas morning, um, which either intentionally or unintentionally, my parents were a master at uh, elongating this waiting and this expectation, and my impatience and frustration uh, was growing to new heights every Christmas morning as we would basically not sleep well. Uh, But then we had to wait until seven to go knock on my parents' door, right? Right? And then after we knocked on my parents' door, we had to wait for my parents to take a shower and get ready. And then we had to wait for them to get ready because they knew they would take some pictures or whatever. And so then they did that, and we would be, ready, are you ready, are you ready? And then they would go downstairs. We had a two-story house, and we would wait upstairs for them to make their coffee. Um, and for them to get things settled. And then we had to wait in expectation for my dad to do his ever predictable, I don't know, I don't know if anything's down here. Are y'all expecting something? Right, and we sit up there and wait and wait and wait. And then finally, after all the ducks are in a row, which felt like hours, and it probably was like 28 minutes, you know, at 728 we probably were going to be able to be face-to-face uh, with the Christmas tree in presence. But we would sit on the stairs. I, had two, I, had, I was the oldest. I had a brother and a sister. So three of us would sit there, and then they would call us down, and we would ramble down the stairs and just be met with joy um, as God had blessed us in a way where we could have great presents and a great tree and enjoy that time together as a family. Uh, of course, that is... I gather a pretty common cultural experience, also a very carnal experience to some degree, not explicitly spiritual, though what I want us to think about it is it's actually implicitly very spiritual because Advent is a season of waiting. Advent is a season of expectation. Advent is actually a season that rightfully so should provoke within us impatience, 
and even emptiness, which sounds a little odd because we get so excited. And, and, and this date, about it used to be like after Thanksgiving, and now poor Thanksgiving is now just easily overlooked uh, in all ways, which I'm, a, I'm an advocate for Thanksgiving, by the way. Um, but there is this emptiness, even in the midst of the excitement, right out of the gates. And what I simply want to say is, that's okay. Like, that's appropriate. In fact, in this broken world, that's not the way it's supposed to be, and we are people that are not the way they're supposed to be. When we're confronted with something that is very good, we also often at the same time simultaneously experience the paradox of something really hard. And that's okay. That's what this season in many ways is about. Richard Rohr, who's a Catholic priest, says this about Advent. Come, Lord Jesus, the Advent mantra means that all of Christian history has to live out a kind of deliberate emptiness, a kind of chosen non-fulfillment. Perfect fullness is always to come, and we need not demand it now. This keeps the field of life wide open and especially open to the grace and to a future created by God rather than ourselves. This is exactly what it means to be awake as the gospel urges us. We can also use other words for Advent, aware, alive, attentive, alert, awake, are all appropriate. Advent is, above all else, a call to full consciousness and a forewarning about the high price of unconsciousness. There is this heightened awareness and consciousness holistically that Advent ushers in for us, and it also creates a sense of emptiness. Our culture doesn't know what to do with that, but the Bible does. Isaiah 64 speaks to a people that were empty, speaks to a people that were weary. They were empty through their own doing, and they were empty through what others had done to them. Does that sound familiar? We create emptiness in our own life through our sin and our brokenness, but we also have been emptied by other people's sins against us, and we are emptied as we live in a sinful and a broken world. And the question is, what do we do with this? How do we become more awake and aware and conscious of our desire and temptation to be unconscious? Isaiah 64, in an overarching way, calls us simply to repent. Isaiah 64 is a call in the midst of this emptiness, in the midst of this desire to be awake and aware and to be fully conscious One of the overarching ways we can do that is by repenting. And Isaiah 64 is a psalm, is wisdom calling us to repent. It is a cry for mercy. And as we unpack this call to repentance, what I want us to see is three things. If we are going to truly receive this call of repentance, and if we are going to cry out with Isaiah for mercy... We must see the truth about who God is. We see that embedded in this passage. We must see the truth about who we are. We see that, specifically our sin in this passage. And then we also must see the truth of the gospel, which is good news 
and not good advice. So a call to repentance that calls us to look about look at who God truly is, a call to repentance that calls us to look at who we really are, and a call to repentance, a cry for mercy uh, for us to understand the reality of the gospel. Let's see what Isaiah 64 has to say about who God really is. You see this reflected in the beginning as Isaiah is intercessing, and he is crying basically for God to do something, almost like our children do with us. Dad, Dad, come, come on. You said you would shoot baskets with me. Come on, do it. Isaiah is saying that to his father. He's saying, that, Father, come on. Come down. Do something. We're weary. We're empty. We're slipping into the temptation of unconsciousness. Would you come down? Would you let the mountains quake? It's not dissimilar to Psalm 46, where it talks about the nations are in uproar. Everything's trembling, and the Lord speaks, and everything is still. You get a sense that that's what Isaiah is asking God to do. And what do we see with regard to who God is here in verses 1 through 5, specifically even 3 through 5? God is a God who acts on behalf of those who wait. It's really hard to wait. It's also hard to wait when we don't understand that waiting is much more active than it is passive. And the Scripture continually, from beginning to end, calls us to a sense of active and aware waiting, where we don't demand immediate gratification and satisfaction. And we don't take things into our own hands to experience that, but we're willing to wait and to groan and to be empty. When we do that, the Scripture tells us that God acts, which is what we really want. But oftentimes, God doesn't act the way we want Him to, or act how we want Him to, or act quick enough so we don't wait. But God, the Scripture tells us that the truth about God is He is one who acts for those who wait. The Scripture also tells us here in Isaiah 64, another truth about God, that He meets with people who work righteousness and experience joy doing so. It's not that God doesn't meet with people that don't work righteousness. I mean, even the gospel tells us, Jesus Himself, I did not come for the righteous, I came for the unrighteous. And that's good news that God meets with those who are unrighteous. Because if He didn't, none of us would meet with God. But then there is this other sense, if nothing else, experientially, that God meets with those who work righteousness. And in the midst of working righteousness, we experience joy. It might go something like this. I can remember a mentor of mine early on in my Christian walk said, you know what? It's amazing how often we stumble over happiness en route to holiness. It's amazing how often we stumble over happiness en route to holiness. And I think that's what Isaiah is getting at here. He's saying God meets in a special and in a way where we are experientially more aware of Him meeting with us and experiencing us when we work righteousness. 
And simply working righteousness means when we reflect His image relationally and therefore are provoked to that which represents Him. Things like honesty and kindness and compassion and not judging and not being self-righteous and caring for the orphan, for the widow, for the oppressed. Those are works of righteousness that give us great joy and that God meets with us. And that, so that's true about God. He acts for those who wait. He meets those who work righteousness. And then the third thing about God is that he remembers those who remember. And I want to encourage you this morning that remembering should be considered a spiritual discipline for anyone seeking to know God. Uh, it's spoken of throughout the scriptures. And as we think about remembering, we first must concede that we forget. So in one way, practically speaking, what I'm saying is we must remember that we forget. We forget who God is. We forget what He's done. We forget who we are. And Isaiah 64, in the midst of calling us to repentance, gives us a truer picture of God as one who meets, one who acts, and one who remembers his people. But what does Isaiah 64 have to say to us with regard to ourselves? So those things are true about God. What is true about us according to this passage? Well, what is true about us is actually not nearly as palatable or pleasant uh, according to Isaiah 64 with what is true about God. And that's okay. I understand fully that sin is not something very popular to talk about. Sin is very misunderstood, and it sure doesn't seem like a good idea to talk about sin during the first Sunday in Advent and Christmas. The problem with that is almost any time someone writes in Scripture, you know, like the prophets about Christmas and Advent, guess what they write about? Sin. So I kind of don't see us having any other choice than for us to look this morning at the truth about ourselves. And I want to draw our attention back to the text here as it starts to unpack what is true about us. In the middle of the passage here, uh, even in your bulletin, behold, you are angry because we sinned. In our sins, we've been a long time. I like the phraseology there. Um, and shall we be saved? I don't know. We've all become like one who is unclean. Even the best things we do are polluted in some very graphic ways. According to Isaiah, we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind. They take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name and who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us. And now we have the experience of melting in our iniquities. Walter Wengren, a fantastic writer and author who's also a Christian. Those things, unfortunately, are not regularly synonymous. Says, my denial of my sin protects preserves and perpetuates that sin. Ugliness in me, while I live in illusions, only grows the uglier. So this is kind of an apologetic, why in the world would we want to look at this? This is why. When we deny our sin, and we protect it, and we preserve it, and we try to perpetuate it, it just gets bigger. Ugliness in me, while I live in illusions, can only grow the uglier. Graham Tomlin, a British pastor, says this, sin has been calmed down, domesticated, neutered. The word is now usually spoken with a slight smirk or a heavy dose of irony. 
describing something as, quote, sinful usually means we think it is naughty, but nice. In the spirit of, I know I shouldn't really, but it'll be fun, and I'm sure it won't do any harm. It's just sin. Well, Isaiah doesn't share the same sentiment, and Isaiah is speaking as a prophet, as a mouthpiece of God. What is sin exactly, to be precise? Sin is an offense against God's character and a violation of His law. Sin is against, primarily, God, though it has impacts for others. Sin is not just breaking rules, but it's breaking a relationship. Sin is universal. And sin, according to the Scriptures, is something that we are born into. We do not, when we are born, sin and therefore become sinners. Unfortunately, that only happened to two people, Adam and Eve. And ever since then, we all have this plight of actually just being born sinners. And you know what sinners do? They sin. Right? Um, And so, that's who we are. And there is this heaviness around the sin. Even the Westminster Confession says this. And I say this just because sin is one of these words that's tossed around a lot, not only culturally but within the church, and I don't think we understand it well. And so, forgive me if these definitions are too mundane. The Westminster Confession says, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin has to do with guilt and pollution. That's why the great hymn, Rock of Ages, says, Be of sin, the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and its power. Sin is something that has to be grappled with. One more quote by way of definition. Tim Keller says this to expound upon our understanding of sin even more. The essence of sin is that we refuse to center on God. We refuse to put God in the center, but we have to put something in the center. And whatever you have put in the center, because your center was shaped for God, then whatever you put in there, whatever you make your bottom line, whatever you make your meaning, whatever you must have, because you have put it in God's place, becomes a God. And that is sin. You can't just like what you have made central of value in your life. You will actually do anything to get that which you've centered your life around. Sin is centering your life around anything and anyone that is not God, yea, even good things like marriage or kids or a job, all of which are good things, but when we make them God things, we're in sin. And that's who we are. And as a result of this, we're empty. And as a result of this, we're longing for renewal. Isaiah describes in a little more detail the components of our sin. One of the things he says about our sin is that we're entrenched in it. He says we've been in our sins like a long time. It's an interesting phrase. We're entrenched. Some people would call this addiction. I know there are technical and helpful scientific and biological and medical definitions of addiction. There's also a good understanding that any sin to some degree could be considered an addiction. 
It's indwelling, and we've been in it a long time, Isaiah says. Isaiah also says that our sin makes us unclean and polluted. And, and at the risk of being overly graphic here, but I still think it's important because Isaiah says this and it gives a certain weightiness to it. He's got a very specific uh, object in mind in verse 6 when he says, in a paraphrase, the best things, the very best things you can do are the equivalent of used minstrel rags. That, that is the literal definition of Isaiah 64, 6, uh, which I understand is unpalatable and distasteful. And guess what? So is your sin. And mine as well. Sin makes us fade away like a leaf. It deteriorates us. It reminds me of Bilbo and Lord of the Rings at the beginning when the ring, which is one of the most genius representations of sin that I've ever read or seen on screen, though Tolkien vehemently denies uh, making it analogous. And in fact, it was critical of C.S. Lewis's good friend for writing Narnia as a metaphor and an analogy. But even still, the ring seems to me to be a pretty poignant illustration of sin. And so this sin has taken a hold of Bilbo at the beginning uh, of the fellowship. And Bilbo tells Gandalf this, I feel thin, sort of stretched like butter scraped over too much bread. I feel thin, sort of stretched like butter scraped over too much bread. That's what sin does to us. It causes us to fade. It takes us away, the text tells us, like the wind. It separates us from God because He becomes hidden from us. It's not that He is hidden from us. It's that our sin causes us to hide from Him like Adam and Eve. And then lastly, the, the summation of what sin does to us is it melts us. It causes us to lose energy and heart. You know what this feels like, right? Like you give in to lust, and that lust is manifested in any number of different ways. After the manifestation of that lust, do you feel energized? After you've spent money that you didn't have because you have an idolatry over your house or your wardrobe, and after it's all said and done, the credit card bill comes or the cash leaves your hand, and you know that it's something that was unwise and irresponsible, do you feel energized? Is your heart at that point full? No. You feel melted and undone. And that's what sin does to us. It undoes us. So where does this leave us? Before we get to the truth about the gospel, as we've reflected on the truth about God and as we've reflected on the truth about ourselves, let's make a quick point of application. What do we do with this reality about us? I would encourage you to do three things. First, be honest about it. Like, just be honest and say that that's who I am, and this is true and indicative about me. There's real freedom, actually, and there is energy in honesty. And taking honesty a step further, it's not only being honest with ourselves and with God, but it's finding people that you can be honest with, right? Cultivating a community that's a truth-telling community where we can speak the truth 
in love. And oftentimes we think about, oh, speaking the truth in love means having to say hard things to another person, which I'm, say, I'm not saying it's not that, but I like a different interpretation of that concept. Speaking the truth in love means being a part of a community that is loving, that allows the truth to be spoken freely. So it's not this so much this harsh, like calling somebody out on something, truth-telling in that kind of way. It's actually cultivating an environment and in a community that is loving, and as a result of being a loving environment and community, the truth flows freely. So be honest about your sin, but not only are we called to be honest about sin, we're called to repent of our sin. There's a lot of confusion about repentance. Repentance and confession are not the same thing. Confession starts the process of repentance. But repentance means we actually do something with our confession. I mean, it's one thing to admit that we're hypocritical. That's great. Like, I appreciate the honesty that we admit that we're hypocritical. But here's an idea, and I'm speaking to myself here, Brent. What if you, like, started to do things to not be hypocritical? Right? Because repentance literally means to turn. So we're to be honest, but honesty is actually not enough if we really want to change. We actually have to turn from one thing to something else. And then the last component of this, by the way, I get get this maxim from Dan Allender, who's a Christian counselor and author, and he talks about what it means to change. He says, honesty, repentance, and then bold love, to live a life of love that is bold. Um, So that's what we do with our sin. We're honest about it, we repent of it, and then we live boldly in love. But then lastly, I want us to see these last two verses, which are really beautiful here in Isaiah that he brings before us. We've seen this call to repentance, and in calling to repent, we realize the truth about God, and we realize the truth about ourselves, but then also we get to realize this truth about the gospel, which is good news. It's, 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 it's good news. It's a herald that says, you think you're bad? Guess what? You're actually worse than you think you are. But you think you're loved? Guess what? You're far more loved and accepted in Jesus than you've ever dared to dream. Verses 8 and 9. These are all this heaviness of our sin. And you've got to love these parts in Scripture. It, pretty much any but now is a good sign in Scripture. It's amazing how often but now ushers in the gospel in Scripture. Look at verses 8 and 9. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please, please, please look. We are your people. I want us to think about this image in conclusion of being the potter and the clay and being in God's hand. And I want to take us to an aforementioned analogy, and it's from C.S. Lewis's book within the Narnia series, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And one of the things that happens in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is you've got Eustace, one of uh, the children, uh, who um, through a series of events uh, becomes very friendly with sin and brokenness and wrongdoing, so much so that it turns him into a dragon, Right? Those of you that are familiar with Narnia will remember Eustace becoming a dragon. Well, 
Eustace does not like the experience long-term of being a dragon, and he starts to feel the very things that Isaiah is talking about in, in chapter 64. He starts to feel this thinness and this emptiness and this melting and this desire basically to not want to be a dragon anymore. And so he's going to be honest about it, and he's going to seek to repent. And so what he starts to do is to peel the dragon skin off himself. It's, it's one of these great, like, Dr. Phil moments for Eustace. Uh, and, and Oprah, even though he didn't know them at the time, that it, this is this self-help technique. He's going to peel the skin away, and he says, I was doing that, and it was great. I've kind of encouraged about this. Of course, this is all paraphrased. But then Eustace says, the problem is, it just kept coming back. Like all this scaly skin, which is synonymous of sin, like I tried to take it away, but then it just kept coming back. And so he has a conversation with Aslan, who is the Christ figure in this. And Aslan says, if you want that skin to go away, you have to let me undress you. And Eustace at this point says, fine, I'm fed up with it. I'm tired of it. Do what you have to do. And at this point, if you'll allow me, I'd like to let C.S. Lewis tell you what happens because he says it better than I can. It's a couple paragraphs. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't on any clothes. And when I suddenly thought that dragons are a snaky sort of things and snakes can cast off their skins, oh, of course I thought this is what the lion means. So I started scratching my scales off myself. And they began coming off, falling all over the place, but it didn't work. I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper. Instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I was just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the water for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet in the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled again, scaly, just as they'd been before. Oh, that's right, I said. It only means that I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to go get out of it too. So I scratched and tore, and under this skin peeled off beautifully, and out of it stepped into it, lying beside it. Then the other one went down into the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened, and I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins do I have to take off? For I was just longing to bathe my legs. So I scratched away the third time and got off the third skin just like the other two and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. The lion said, but I don't know if it really spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear was made so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab in a sore place, it hurts, but it's so fun to see it go away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times. Only when I did it, it didn't hurt. And there I was lying on the grass ever so much more thicker and darker and scalier and knobblier than I ever thought that skin was. And there I was, smooth and soft, peeled. Then he caught hold of me. I did not like that much, for I was very tender underneath, and now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. 
It hurt like anything for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain from my arm had gone away. And then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. See, here's the deal. There's no healing without hurting. And so if God really is the potter and we really are the clay, we've just got to concede that the potter's touch is not always gentle. In fact, there's this mixture of gentleness and firmness that hurts and heals. And that's good news. Because you see, this whole text is Isaiah intercessing for his people. Well, guess what? Isaiah prophesies about someone else who intercesses for his people. In fact, that intercessor is sitting at the right hand of God the Father right now, and his name is Jesus. And he's intercessing for you to be clean and new. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this word. We thank you that because of the gospel, we can be honest and we can repent and we can love boldly. We pray that we would. We pray that you would renew us and that you would remake us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.